Welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Luke. Praise to the God who reigns above. We join Pastor Will in Luke chapter 21, verse 29. Remember, this whole discussion started at the beginning of the chapter when the disciples wanted to know when Jerusalem would be destroyed and what events would show that that time was soon. Matthew and Mark tell us that they also asked two other questions. When this age would end and what signs would precede Christ's return. And while Luke primarily covers Jesus' answers to the first two questions, when Jerusalem would be destroyed and what event would show that that was near, Luke does briefly share Jesus' answer to the other two questions. When the end of the age would come and what signs would precede his return. And, and those answers have three very important lessons that Luke wants us to learn. And we looked at the first one last week. We're going to look at the other two this morning. So a couple of important contextual reminders. Jesus has taken us to the very end of the tribulation by verse 27. So when you combine verses 10 and 11, nations shall rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, Great earthquakes there shall be in all in diverse places, and famines, pestilences, and fearful sights, and great signs shall there be from heaven. When you combine that with verses 25 through 27, and there shall be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars and on the earth, distress of nations with perplexity because of the roaring of the waves, men's hearts failing them for fear and for looking after those things which are coming on the earth. For the powers of the heavens shall be shaken, and then shall they see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When you take those five verses together, that's Luke's short summary of that seven-year period known as the Great Tribulation. And yet, in sharing just those five verses from Jesus' much longer sermon that we have in the other Gospels, we see how awful that that time of judgment will be. Just in those five verses, you don't want to be around when all that stuff is happening. And that was lesson number one found in verse 28, that when these things, the initiating processes of these things coming to pass, he says then, look up, straighten up, and lift up your heads. It means to look danger in the face and and to face it. Look up, straighten up, sail into the wind. Look that danger in the face because your redemption is close. While there's still time, lesson number one is that we must demonstrate the courage to love our enemy and to build God's eternal kingdom by bringing as many lost souls to Christ as possible before that judgment begins. One of the other things we talked about last week, I'm going to remind you of before we move forward, is that Satan's plan, the mystery of iniquity, is always at work. But even though that's true, God is the one who's in control, amen? And God's plan isn't a mystery, okay? It's revealed in his word. People say, oh, Revelation's a mystery. It's a sealed book. No, it's not. In fact, the Bible actually tells us, do not seal the words of this book up. It's not a sealed book, and it's not a mystery. We can understand it. We can understand God's plan. And one part of God's plan is very important, and that's going to bring us to lesson two. So verse 29, Luke 21. And he spoke unto them a parable. Behold the fig tree and all the trees. When they now shoot forth, you see and know of your own selves that summer is nigh at hand. So likewise you, when you see these things come to pass, know you that the kingdom of God is at hand. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass away till all be fulfilled. 
Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Jesus starts off with this important part of God's plan by sharing a parable, the parable of the fig tree. He says, behold the fig tree. It means to take special notice of something. And then he says, all the, all the trees as well. So the story applies to all trees, but why does Jesus single out the fig tree first? Interestingly, John the Baptist, when he came and taught, he said that the axe was laid to the root of the trees and that every tree that didn't bring forth fruit would be hewn down. That's what John said. So the idea here of this concept of trees, we know it refers to God's people, the idea there that they hadn't been walking in his ways. He's calling them to repent. He's calling them to get ready for their Messiah. And if they don't, the axe is laid to the root and the tree's coming down. Now, in Luke 13, verses 6 through 9, we'd already talked about this in many eons past. But in that passage, Jesus told a parable about a fig tree in a vineyard that wasn't bearing fruit. And the lesson there also was that if Israel didn't repent, they would perish alongside everyone else they thought deserved to be judged. They would be judged too. The Old Testament frequently compares Israel to a fig tree. In the book of Hosea, chapter 9, verse 10, it mentions in particular, it says, I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your fathers as the first ripe in the fig tree at her first time. But they went to Baal Peor and separated themselves under that shame. And their abominations were according as they loved. It's interesting, Baal Peor is the whole story of Balaam. And and we're actually going to reference that tonight when we studied uh, Joshua 21. It's always interesting how our studies tend to work together sometimes. But the idea is that was a time period when Israel, they they were right on the edge of the promised land. And, And they went into idolatry because they did not love the Lord. That was the last of that first generation to die out. The Lord refers to them as a fig tree, as the first ripe, the ones who came out of Egypt, the very beginning of the nation. And yet, they didn't love him and he judged them. The idea here of this fig tree, they were always used as a symbol of national prosperity. And always when you see a fig tree being cut down or hewn down, it was a symbol of national judgment. And a fig tree growing, a sign of national rebirth. We see it all throughout the Old Testament, and Jesus is going to use it here again. So while these verses are a generic lesson about how Jesus' word can be trusted, there is something about Israel here too. He says, when they now shoot forth these trees, their branches sprout leaves, you see and you know of your own selves that summer is now nigh at hand. In other words, when you see the tree is beginning to its leaves are sprouting, you know that summer's close. But here's what's interesting about the fig tree. Figs appear on the tree before it sprouts leaves. And so you can eat from it long before summer. So when it begins to sprout leaves, it's not that winter's over and spring is close. It means that summer is close. That's different than maybe other trees would work. What's Jesus's point? Verse 31. So likewise you, when you see these things come to pass, know you that the kingdom of God is nigh at hand. For verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass away till all be fulfilled. 
So when we see these things, and again, these things goes back to verse 28, the initiation of the process of Satan's plan. We already, that's the context here that we're dealing with, all right? When we see his plan beginning to take place, we don't need to you know, bunker down. We don't need to hunker down. We need to share our faith. We need to spread the gospel. We need to make disciples. Look up, lift up your heads for your redemption draws nigh. But in addition to that, we need to know that the kingdom of God is nigh at hand. It is relatively close. While Satan's plan is always at work, God, we saw last week, is holding it back. Well, how do we know when that changes? How do we know that God isn't going to hold back for much longer? Well, the fig tree reference and verse 32 clue us in. He says, Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass away till all be fulfilled. Now, in English, we use the word generation to talk about a time when a a group of people existed, right? We talk about Gen X, you know, Generation Y, and, and of course, the beloved millennials, right? But the Greek word here for generation, it means this race or this people group. While it can mean contemporaries in time, like people who exist at the same time you do, it's much more concerned with a specific group of people than a specific amount or period of time. Therefore, This generation, the only thing it can refer to is the Jewish people group because he's already made reference. He says, behold, all trees, but specifically the fig tree. Specifically the fig tree. So this generation in context, the only people group that could be in context here is the people of the fig tree. It is the Jewish people group. So what's the point? Well, this people group, the Jewish people, The Jewish nation in particular, we see it growing, sprouting leaves, the rebirth of the nation. Well, they will not pass away or cease to exist in the nation until, as a nation, until all be fulfilled. What's very fascinating is if we go back to verse 24 in Luke 21, we see Israel out of the land, out of the land, right? The diaspora. We see that it says they shall fall by the edge of the sword. They shall be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. But now we see a fig tree growing. And he says, this people group will not cease to exist in that place of growing in the land again until all be fulfilled. So in verse 24, we saw the fig tree cut down. And then for a fig tree to sprout leaves, it means it's growing again. So it's Israel reborn, Israel back in the land. What is Jesus saying? How do we know when God is saying, I'm not going to hold it back for much longer? I'm not going to hold the enemy from his plan taking place much longer. Well, it's when Israel is reborn as a nation. When Israel is reborn as a nation at some point, they will never cease to be a nation in the land again. Even though Satan's plan is at work at all times and God's holding him back, this is part of God's plan, Israel being reborn. And therefore, it signals the true nearness of the end. This prophecy that Jesus gave here was fulfilled on May 19, 1948, when Israel declared their independence and they became a nation. In 1949 is when it was recognized. When we see the initiating processes of Satan's plan, well, that's just normal life. It goes up and down and ebbs and flows. 
But when we see God initiating his plan alongside the enemy trying to institute his plan, well, then that means the end is close. It means we're very close to the time when God says, I'm not going to hold him back much longer. What does that mean for us living in 2019? Well, it means the end is very close, doesn't it? Do you understand what I'm, where, where I'm going here? The point is, is that all throughout the ages, the church has thought, well, maybe it's this time. We see Satan's plan going into place, but then the Lord said, no, hold the phone. Not my plan. But that changed in 1949 when the Lord said, this is part of my plan, and this is how you can know that the kingdom of God is relatively near. It's relatively close. When Israel is reborn as a nation, they will never be out of their land again. Never. I want to take a moment to stop because there's all sorts of weird theologies out there about this generation. They say, well, generation's 40 years, generation's 100 years, generation's this. Or it's when the, the last person you know, dies who was there in 1949 when Israel became a nation. You can do the numerology all you want. That's not what the text is saying, all right? This is, by the way, why you know, the book was written, 80, 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming Back in 88. Well, Israel was reborn as a nation in 88, 48, and 40 years later is 88. That's not what this is saying. This is not saying that there's a specific group of people that before they die, Jesus has to come back. That is not what it's saying. It's saying that Israel as a nation in the land will not pass away, will not cease to exist until all these things be fulfilled. And guess what? When we get to the tribulation period, where do we find Israel? Back in the land. How do you know that? Because in Matthew 24 and Mark 13, Jesus prophesies of the abomination of desolation in the rebuilt temple of Israel in the land. You know what's interesting? We live in these times. We go, oh yeah, Israel's a nation, big deal. But for centuries, preachers ignored this. Preachers said, God's done with Israel. There's whole theologies, whole denominations are based on the idea that God was finished with Israel and the church is Israel now. Sadly, People ignore Jesus' words despite this clarity. And for centuries, Bible teachers rejected the idea of Israel being a nation again because it sounded impossible. Pastors and preachers who taught what the Scripture said were mocked. Israel, nation again? That's absurd. And yet, against all reason and hope and logic, in 1949, the UN recognized Israel's independence, recognized that they are a nation. And since that day, they've been in the land. That's why Jesus reiterated the importance of his word and not our idea of possible in verse 33. He says, heaven and earth will pass away, but guess what? What won't? My words will never pass away. They will not pass away. My words, what I have to say, even though you think it's impossible, will never pass away. Listen, I don't know about you. I tend to be a worry wart. But I don't go to bed at night worrying if the planet will still be here. I don't go to bed worrying if the sky will still be here when I wake up in the morning. It's not on my list of concerns. But those will actually cease to exist someday. In fact, there will come a period in time where they're not working right. When the sun won't work right, the stars won't work right, the sky won't look the same, the earth will be in such physical turmoil that the landscape will change, that islands will disappear and mountains will disappear. They will become unreliable and someday they will actually cease to exist. 
when Jesus creates a new heaven and a new earth. Only one thing will remain forever, and it's his words. Now, we use this verse, verse 33, to speak of the inspiration of God's word, and rightfully so. But it's spoken in the context of what? Prophecy, right? It's spoken in the context of prophecy. I must always humble myself in the presence of God's predictions. Frequently I see people say, Pastor Will, do you really believe in that rapture thing? What a silly idea that we're all going to just go up in the air. What a fanciful fairy tale idea. You know, it's almost like it's, you know, it's not cool to believe in that anymore. You know, when I was a new Christian in the 80s, everybody believed in that, you know? That's why the 80s were the best period. Best music, best time period ever, right? People mock the idea of a literal seven-year tribulation period, antichrist, and they do so from within the church. They do it from pulpits these days. I must always humble myself in the presence of God's predictions because he's never wrong. Even if world circumstances seem to contradict what he predicts, he's never, ever wrong. Because his word is even more real than what I can see and taste and touch. And that's lesson number two. God's word is more real than what I can see, I can taste, I can hear, I can touch. It is more real. And that applies to prophecy. It applies to what God says about your marriage. It applies to what God says about parenting. It applies to what God says about work. It applies to what God says about government. It applies to what God says about culture. And so I ask, do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that what God says about your marriage or your parenting or your work or your culture or prophecy is more real than what your senses tell you? And do you live in light of that? You know, frequently when I'm doing marriage counseling or parent counseling or life counseling with someone, and I'll say, well, God's word says, you know, we need to do this. Hey, just look at me like, that's not going to work, Pastor Will. It's not going to work. I get it all the time. You don't know my spouse or you don't know my kids or you don't know my boss. Or... And the truth is, I don't know what to say at that point. <laughs> Because without faith, it's impossible to please God. He who comes to him must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And if you don't believe that, I don't know what else to tell you. I don't, I haven't, I haven't, I'm not, I'm not some yogi you can come to who can just kind of chant over you and fix your life, right? I'm not, I'm not someone who has great wisdom because I've experienced a lot of life and I know how to do it better than other people. That's, the whole thing I have is I've, I'm a beggar who found some bread and I can show you where to get the bread. If you don't believe the bread's there, I can't help you. I can't help you. I can show you the pond where I found some really good fish. But if you're going to go, I don't think there's any fish in there. I don't think the pole will work. I can't help you. At some point, you have to come and say, I believe that God knows better than I do. So if I see Satan's plan in motion, hey, it's okay. Lift up your heads. Straighten up. Look at danger in the face. Doesn't matter that the world's opposed to you, culture's opposed to you. Go and make disciples. Time is short. Your redemption's close. You're going to get a new body. If they get rid of this one, you get the new one. But lesson number two is if you see Satan's plan and God's plan in motion, 
well, then you know the end is close for sure. But anyone, you might think, okay, so what about those who've seen Satan's plan in motion and they're sharing their faith and that's great, but they don't see God's plan in motion. Israel's not a nation yet, so could all those generations, they could just chill, right? You know, Jesus can't come back yet, right? Incorrect. And that brings us to lesson number three. Jesus says, verse 34, and take heed to yourselves, lest at any time your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting, the King James says, and drunkenness and cares of this life. And so that day come upon you as unaware. For as a snare shall it come on all them that dwell on the face of the whole earth. Therefore, watch you and pray always that you may be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. The word here, take heed, it's a command. And it means you must be in a continual state of readiness. He says, you must be in a continual state of readiness as it regards yourself. Lest at any time your hearts, your innermost self, your thoughts, your desires, your plans become overcharged. The word means to be weighed down or troubled. You need to be in a continual state of readiness as it regards yourself, your own spiritual well-being, Lest at any time your thoughts, your plans, your desires become weighed down or troubled with surfeiting. The word there means that the condition of a drunk person when they no longer have moral restraint. When you become drunk, they, they say when your alcohol lessens your inhibitions. And so some people like that because it allows them to express themselves. Well, yeah, you can express yourself in a whole lots of ways that you'll regret days later. But that's the idea. It also, you lose moral restraint. You lose the ability to reason where you say that's not a good decision. And that's what this word surfeiting describes. Your heart becomes troubled or weighed down with a lack of moral restraint. With, it says, drunkenness. With the cares, the anxieties, the worries of this life that things might go bad here. I know you know this, but the Christian life isn't one of lacking moral restraint, drunkenness, or anxiety over our future. Do you know that? That's not the Christian life that God promised to us. Paul, when he was talking to Timothy, said, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, he said, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. That's the Christian life. Not one that lacks moral restraint, drunkenness, or anxiety over the future. We have clear instructions from God about right and wrong. We don't need the buzz of alcohol to enjoy life. And our future is clear, we win. So we have no reason to worry. We have no reason to get drunk. We have no reason to lack moral restraint. But when I am not in a continual state of readiness for the Lord's return, when I'm not paying close attention to my spiritual well-being, well, guess what? My innermost self that knows what pleases God, it becomes burdened down with those other things. We get confused about what's okay and what's not okay. We start craving things that don't please God. And we become anxious about our future. When you and I are more concerned about what we can get out of life here, rather than investing in the eternal kingdom, we lose focus. 
We let our eyes get on the culture that hates us. We become offended and grumpy. We try to build or maintain our kingdom here instead of building God's eternal kingdom. And as a result, then, we, we miss out on the first warning that Jesus gave at the beginning of this teaching was, take heed that you be not deceived. Take heed that you be not deceived. Deception is not the purpose of God allowing Satan's plan to move forward. So when you begin to see his plan moving forward, we're not to become anxious. We're to lift up our heads, straighten up, make disciples. Our redemption draws nigh. You know, when we see his plan and God's plan coinciding, well, guess what? It's just another reason to know that God's word is true. So we should be trusting God's word at all times because it's more real than anything else that we can see, taste, touch, hear, you name it. But God's purpose in allowing Satan's plan to move forward is not so we batten down the hatches here. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.